There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at Grant's microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27 year veteran of the nypd retired out of manhattan north homicide squad and with me today is retired nypd detective phil grimaldi straight out of brooklyn welcome to the show today phil how you doing i'm doing good billy how about you pretty good you know this is a very very interesting case and I think there's a lot of people that are really concerned with this case. A lot of people have sort of theories. We talk about, uh, you always say spitballing, and that's when detectives sit around and they discuss a case, and they come up with uh, a direction, an investigative direction. I call it hypothesizing and theorizing, a little more scientific than spitballing, but nonetheless, it's- That's the college the professor in you. <laughs> it means the same thing. And same thing, we sit around with investigators, detectives, and we discuss what we have. what And what does the evidence mean? And what direction are we going with? And one of the most important things in all of these investigations, and many people on YouTube uh, don't realize this, it's talking to people. It's interviewing people, not just the subjects or people that you deem in the inner circle of this investigation, but people on the outer circle. And that's how you find out information that you never knew before, and information that can be pertinent to this case. And that's the kind of information that will help solve this case. Now, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence in this case. However, it's coming in in dribs and drabs. And we watched the press conference yesterday, and, you know, this case is not unlike any other homicide case. No, Very few homicide cases are what we call in the NYPD a ground ball, you know, a ground ball, you, you field the ball, you throw it to first base and you got an out. And that's a metaphor for you field the ground ball you make an arrest and you close the case. Very few of them are ground balls. They're, you got to investigate. You got to use the investigative techniques that you learned over a long career. And you got to apply those investigative techniques and you have to apply evidence and use that evidence uh, to make an arrest. And I just want to, you know, there's, there's some definitions that we need to know. When people talk about probable cause, people use that word or those two words. However, I don't know if they really know what they mean. And probable cause simply means facts and circumstances that a reasonable person lead a, re lead a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person being arrested committed the crime. That's uh, the definition of probable cause. And Joe Murray would be proud, Bill. Oh, yeah. Well, I still remember that from my professor days. Yes, yes. The other thing is when we talk about search warrants, there is a standard of proof in order to get a search warrant. And uh, Phil, I don't want to embarrass you. Well, I ask you, what's that standard? The standard is very high. I mean, to get a search warrant, you have to bring uh, 
evidence you have to bring, whether it be interviews, you have to bring information to a district attorney. They write up a request for it. And then it goes to a judge and a judge reviews it. And a lot of times the judge will ask to speak if there's an informant, ask to speak to the informant face to face to hear from the informant's mouth. I've had a search warrant turned down where we, we knew there were guns inside of a location and the informant didn't know the exact address. However, I had been there with him several times and I explained that, Your Honor, I was there. I gave the address. No good. He's got to know the address. Knock the search warrant. So it's a very high level. Well, you, you gave a long answer, but the answer is probable cause. You need okay. probable cause in order to get a search warrant. And Absolutely. if the judge deems there's not probable cause, he denies the search warrant. So with that in mind, there was a search warrant um, enacted very early in this in investigation. Yes. And who, who was it on? It was on the daughter. Yes, it was on Amanda and her boyfriend. Right. So what does that mean all to all of us fans, all of us followers of true crime? That means, obviously, they're in the mix, that they're being looked at very seriously by the detectives, by the investigators as potential players. And they haven't used that term that we always hate, person of interest. <laughs> of interest. They haven't used that yet. Well, yes. Phil and I like to use the term suspect. Yeah. But they haven't used that. But what does that mean to people following this case that, that they uh, executed a search warrant at Amanda's home? I just said you needed probable cause to present it to a judge, right? That's, you know, it's not the same probable cause as we would get. It'd be different if she was arrestable or if she's named a suspect or that old person of interest thing. But they are right now. They are being looked at. Absolutely, Billy. And you know what I think, uh, my opinion of if I was present for this investigation, right? You get called to the scene, you find the body, you start to find out from the family that there was this text message that went back and forth. But I think that very early on, I think they had uh, a direction on where they were going with this case. Obviously, they executed the search warrant. Now, a lot of things have been revealed about this case publicly through uh, the sheriff's office. I believe it's the uh, Habersham Sheriff's Office. So, again, I don't know if uh, they're just, uh, you know, not good on public information. They're releasing too much information or are they doing, doing it intentionally to perhaps make uh, players that might be involved in this case uh, come forward with information to get themselves out of the trick bag, so to speak. What I mean by that is one turning on the other. There could be two, three people involved in this thing. Uh, it's clear and obvious that this was not a random act. This uh, They said publicly it's not a kidnapping. It's not a suicide. Uh, they called it uh, targeted and they called it uh, personal. So again, um, I think that they have a very good direction. Um, very certain is going to be an arrest in this case. I, I said yesterday on the chat that arrest is imminent. I think I still believe that to be true. However, you know, when you, when you have a direction, you, you know, who your suspects are going to be. Uh, now the prosecutor's office gets involved in it. And like you said earlier, Billy, we're, we're going to do some hypothesizing and theorizing and spitballing. And we're going to take, we're going to slow it down a little bit because we want all the evidence. We want to be able to go into court with a case and make it stick. And we don't want to lose anything. We want to keep everything intact evidence wise. And then again, like you stated earlier, a lot of the evidence that's been submitted to labs takes time to get back whether it be uh, forensic evidence or even uh, video evidence, uh, computer, cell phone, things like that. That technology does not happen like on TV in a snap. It, ha it takes some time.
You know, folks, I'm going to play some of these news snippets that give us little sound bites of what the detectives are looking at. And then we'll comment on it. And we'll, and so I know some of this we played yesterday or some of this was available yesterday, but I think it helps us to see the bigger picture. And I'm going to play a little bit of this right now up on the screen. And then we'll comment on, on this uh, information uh, after it plays. Uh, something went wrong here. Sorry, folks. So let me get uh, let me get back to that initial Developing one. Developing out of Habersham County, investigators have an update in a Georgia mother's disturbing death. She was found partially clothed and burned in a heavily wooded area more than 50 miles from her home. Oxide's Kevin Stewart has more on this disturbing case. Yeah, this morning was the first time that reporters got to talk to investigators first face to face and ask them uh, more specific questions. And I can tell you that they are uh, trying to scour the entire region, looking for pictures and video, uh, try to connect the dots and uh, trace Debbie Collier's movements. And to that end, I want to show you this video. This It's actually a snapshot that was just released this morning, uh, the day before she was found dead. This is her car driving northbound on Georgia 15 around 215 on September 10th. That would be in the direction of the Clayton family dollar. Uh, that's where she was last seen alive. This afternoon, investigators say they will release a new video which shows her leaving the family dollar and sitting inside her car for about 10 minutes until about 320. Keep in mind, it was about that time Collier's daughter said she received money from Collier through Venmo and a note saying, quote, they are not going to let me go. Love you. Was that 319? because we see her in that vehicle leaving the parking lot, heading southbound on Georgia 15. There is no information or evidence to this point that shows that this was something random, that there was something that was out, that was not uh, from somebody that she either knew or somebody who she had uh, some association with. Now, we may be weeks out from getting an autopsy and finding out how she was killed, but investigators insist this was not a suicide. They believe this is a homicide. They said they're not backing off of that. We'll get into that coming up at 4 o'clock. But for now, we're live in Clarksville. Kevin Stewart, Fox 5 News. So, folks, someone in the chat just asked, what makes um, the police believe that it was n it's targeted and personal and not random? Well, we discussed early on when we first came on, they they enacted, uh, they executed a search warrant at the daughter's house. That tells you that they think they, well, you know, they haven't used person of interest yet, but they're looking at them, all right? They are absolutely looking at them. Look at um, Debbie's conduct. She drove 60 miles to this, this dollar store when she has dollar stores 10 minutes from her house. And she bought very specific things. Then she drove to um, a wooded area and parked a car. Someone directed her there. She didn't go there by accident. She was directed there. The other thing that is bothering a lot of people, and I can't specifically um, answer this because this uh, would be answered by the autopsy. She was laying on her back and she grasped a tree branch with her hand. One thing, and I'm going to throw this out there, could be indicative of she could have been shot and she could have fallen and grabbed that branch with her hand as she was falling down and fall, fallen on her back. 
But the, I don't know that because the results of the autopsy, but I'm just throwing it out there. Could she, could a cause of death have been gunshot wound? And the um, the fire on her abdomen was started to, co- uh, to cover up a homicide, to cover up evidence. It's done all the time. So I'm, as I said, I spoke about yesterday on the NYPD in a homicide case, the catching detective is required to attend the autopsy. This way, there's no misinformation. There's no miscommunication between the medical examiner, pathologist, and our detectives. They're right in the room. And when they have questions about what's going on, they ask them right at the autopsy. However, in this case, it seems like they don't know the results of the autopsy, even though the autopsy was conducted. Then maybe their procedure is not that a detective from the Habersham Police Department attends the autopsy because they don't know the cause of death. However, they're saying the manner of death is homicide, but there's no cause yet. Phil, you want to comment on that? Your sound is off, Phil. I'm sorry. Uh, the fact that she was found uh, grasping a tree branch, uh, that would indicate to me that possibly, uh, like you said, maybe a gunshot or a stab wound or something was causing her to fall. And she probably reached out and tried to grab onto something. Uh, just it's a, a reaction. It's a human reaction. Um, again, uh, all of these different factors that are coming forward, and we don't even have the case folder in front of us. We don't know what more there is. Now, again, you brought up the point about going to the autopsy. That's very important because when there's an autopsy uh, performed on a on homicide victim, specific things will become apparent to the person doing the autopsy, the medical examiner, the doctor, whoever it is. And they're going to want to translate that information to uh, the detectives uh, to give a little more insight onto what happened, what took place when that person was killed. Uh, it also could give information that the uh, detectives will have if they're going to question somebody and they start to see that they're giving information that's not quite correct based on the information that was garnered from that autopsy. So again, uh, most of the time we did uh, go to the autopsy uh, and confer with the medical examiner however in certain well, cases Phil, I, I know it was most it's it wasn't that uh, lackadaisical it was you were ordered to do that because i remember yeah. as a boss getting screamed at because the catching detective went home and didn't go to the autopsy because she was up all night and had to take care of her kids and i took the heat from it so yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like oh go to the autopsy it was like that is your job go to the autopsy yes you know? no but the only time that I wouldn't go to the autopsies if we were making an arrest on a case, things were fluid and you, you know, you couldn't be in two places at once on a situation where you knew who the perfect And someone had to go for you. Someone had to substitute for you. Yes. Yes. So somebody would have to appear at the medical examiner's office for that autopsy to get the information. But again, um, there's things happening in this case. It's very odd that there was that 10 minute period where she's in the car. Now, when she's in the car outside of the dollar store, uh, what what transpired? Was she on her phone? Was she uh, sending the, the they believe she was sending the Venmo to her daughter? So was she was there a ruse that caused her to believe that she was in danger and she or someone else was in danger, a loved one, and that caused her to act the way she acted? And then, like you said, she drives this distance. Now, was she forced to drive there? Did she pick someone up along the way and then they force her to that location? All of those things I think are gonna have to be figured out. And then probably very, very critical. I want to know the location of the daughter and her husband and anyone else in the family when we believe that this murder went down. Now we, we have a pretty good idea of when it went down. So 
Where were these people? What were their movements during that period of time? So that's going to be very important. And then we talked about many times before the cell phone technology is going to indicate uh, where they were or where their cell phone was during that period of time. Very, very important. If they have vehicles, uh, there might be uh, navigational equipment on the vehicles or tracking information on the vehicles that could tell us their location as well. So those things are going to be very important. 100%. And you know something for me right now, and I'm impatient like everyone else, um, why is the cell phone information taking so long? And I had said earlier on in this case, I think had they requested help from the FBI and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the clout that those two organizations have, I think could have at least expedited the cell yes. phone carrier information to come back much quicker. Because the FBI has a lot of clout with these uh, these electronic carriers. And for that very reason, I think they may it would have been a good idea for them to have requested help from the FBI. You know, Billy, uh, the FBI's help is always good because they have the deep pockets. These things cost money and these small agencies may not have the funds for it and might be a little reluctant to lay out money for something that, oh, well, we're going in a good direction. We could do that later. No, with the FBI, they're picking up the phone. They're getting it done quicker. They have the deep pockets. So that's a great point that you're bringing up, Billy. And I think one of the other things they, they've uh, said that her cell phone was has been recovered. That's going to be a very important piece of evidence. So they don't have to go through the carrier. They can get into the cell phone and see what messages, uh, text messages, or what what uh, she may have searched on her phone, if there was something with the maps. Uh, all very, very, very important. Yeah, they, well, they did recover the, uh, the cell phone at the crime scene. And uh, two of the things I would absolutely have done to that phone is I would have it dusted for fingerprints and swabbed for DNA. Absolutely. Here's some more um, evidence that they spoke about yesterday. Let's just play this. Uh, so the, the, according to the original report sent out, the van was seen by a group of all officers sitting there on the side of the road around 5 o'clock Saturday. And, of course, when you all got there, the van was there. Fine was low on that, Billy. Yeah, I know. It's it's the best I could do right now. Okay. Well, obviously, uh, from our timeline, we know it wasn't there the entire time. It was not there. So are you, well, are you home? From 5 p.m. Saturday. No, 5 p.m. Saturday. To 11-ish, 12-ish when you guys got there. Oh, Sunday, okay. Was it? did it ever leave that location? Now, that we're not aware of. Okay. Uh, when you said the 5 o'clock thing, I didn't know if you were talking about Friday. But no, as far as the time. What, what the detective is talking about is when the van was um, found at that location on the side of the road and uh, at the homicide scene where she was found, uh, I don't know, 100 yards from the from the road in the woods, the, the, the news reporter is asking, was the van there from approximately 5 p.m. on Friday till 11 a.m. or 12 a.m., uh, 12 p.m. Uh, on, on September 11th when they discovered the van there? He wasn't aware of it. So they're a little bit behind, and this was as of yesterday, they're a little bit behind on the evidence that they, to know that the van was there overnight. And that's an important little bit of information also. And I believe the van was tracked there by the satellite radio because the van was a rental car. Her, her car apparently was in the shop. Debbie uh, Talia's car was in the shop and she rented a van. I'd like to really look, you know, know a little more about that. That's all we're, we're told is that her car was in the shop and she rented this van.
and that, that, gives was, a good, that gives a good timeline on when we believe the murder uh, took place. If it's if the vehicle is parked at that location from 5 p.m. on the 10th, we know she's coming out of the store uh, 3, 3.30. Uh, so it's a good idea of when the murder took place. And um, I think that him being a little behind on that is uh, not such a great thing. No. Online, the, only, the only times we can establish as far as that van is there is uh, that we're still getting – trickling information. I think there was another question in here if there was any tips from the community that has helped us out. Yes, because it has helped us narrow down timelines. We're still following up to see if we can actually get uh, confirmation of this van being there at certain times. Um, but as of right now, from what we know, she that, that van was there at the crime scene on Sunday is what we can confirm. Now, as far as her time getting back to the crime scene, we cannot confirm that. We're still working on leads and trying to confirm that information. Uh, you know, folks, someone um, uh, has, has asked, um, is it typical for law enforcement to um, disclose her specific wounds, burns, and position in death, but withhold information like a gunshot or stab wound? To tell you the truth, I wouldn't reveal any of that stuff. Um, I, don't, I was amazed that they were as transparent as they were. And I know that when I was on the NYPD, I would always get annoyed when the chief of detectives office would give certain information to the press and that would go out there to the public. But I didn't have control of that. That was there's several ranks above, above who I was. But in this department, they gave away a lot of information. However, what everyone, of course, is waiting for, and it seems like we're waiting for this on every homicide case we cover on YouTube is the autopsy results. And they don't seem to be forthcoming anytime soon. However, they, they did mention that she was burnt uh, about the abdomen and she was naked. And that those were things that I, I felt that they didn't need to release to the public. I really felt that uh, they didn't need to release that. You know, Billy, that's going to be important to see if those wounds will cause post-mortem or before she was dead. I mean, that's going to be very important. Was she tortured, uh, burning on the stomach? Or was that something to cover up the homicide? Uh, was it done before she was dead? All of those things are going to be very, very important. And then I find it puzzling about these items that she bought, Bill. What do you think about that? The top, the lighter, the rain poncho, the tote bag. Was it raining that day that she bought a, a, a rain poncho? I mean, uh, well, Phil, we, dis we discussed that yesterday. And she was dressed. In fact, I'm going to put this video up there. She was dressed to go to a football game. And all of those things are, are items that you might bring with you to a football tailgate party because it was raining. Here, this is, this is her going into the store. Tonight in the mysterious and gruesome death of Athens mom, Debbie Collier, new surveillance video shows Collier buying the very items that police would find just hours later next to her burned naked body. Tonight, only on 11 Alive News, the clerk in that video who was seen checking Collier out reacts to the fact that she might be the last person to see her alive. 11 Alive's Cody Alcorn is live in the studio right now. So, Cody, this video, this video here just adds another layer of questions to this already puzzling case. No doubt, Ron, this video just adds to the complexity of this case. Debbie Collier's body was found on Sunday, September 11th. This video you're about to watch was captured 21 hours earlier, 13 miles north of the crime scene. 
showing Collier buying the items that ultimately led deputies to her body. On Saturday, September 10th at 2.55 p.m., the Habersham County Sheriff's Office confirms this is Debbie Collier, captured on video walking into the family dollar in Clayton, Georgia. She's wearing a red visor, a black purse across her chest, and appears to have her rental key fob in hand. The video jumps to Collier checking out. On the counter, a red tote bag. She then places a blue tarp, rain poncho, paper towels, and a refillable torch lighter on the counter. I do remember her. I remember checking her out, but I really don't remember like what we talked about. I talked to the clerk who checked out Collier. Esther Kreller told me over the phone, the items Collier bought didn't set off any red flags. It's a common thing that people buy. We were going to put up the tarps like um, for the winter, but then my boss said no because people buy them year round. Oh, yeah, the big the big bags. Yeah, people buy those a lot to put a bunch of stuff in, like reusable grocery bags. Kreller said Collier didn't act like anything was wrong. She didn't seem in distress. Knowing what she does today. I nothing looked up suspicious or out of the ordinary Maybe i wish i would have went outside you know around that time see if anybody was with her but i had, you know who would have thought who would have thought 21 hours later collier's body would be found naked and burned along with that tarp and red tote bag 13 miles away Habersham County says all the video they have from this family dollar and surrounding businesses show Collier was alone in the van when she stopped at the family dollar. But remember, the sheriff's office also confirmed Debbie Collier kidnapped and did not die. A lot of moving parts here, Cody. Thanks a lot. And folks, we want to break down the timeline of this new information because, as Cody just pointed out, a very complex case, right? Debbie Collier's husband said the last time that he saw her was around 9 p.m. Friday, September 9th. Now, this new video you just saw places Collier and Clayton at 2.55 p.m. The next day, 20 minutes later, 3.17 p.m., Collier's daughter said that her mom sent her a Venmo payment of nearly $2,400 with a cryptic message saying in part, they are not going to let me go love you. At 6 p.m., Collier's husband files a missing persons report, and then the next day, September 11th, at around 12.30 p.m., Collier's rental vehicle was found along with her body nearby. Now, I think that that Venmo being sent and that um, seemingly message about sort of like a kidnapping, that's obviously a guise, and that's obviously has no... It, it's meant to misdirect the investigation and to make it look like it's a kidnapping but it's pretty clumsy i think because i don't know why it's taking so long for them to determine what electronic device uh was the venmo was the money sent um to amanda's account from like why can't that be figured out by some computer expert or some electronic crimes expert was it sent from Debbie's phone, or was it not? I'm here. I, I read some things, and, and it's unconfirmed that it was sent from the husband's account. But that they could also have a co-account, a co-Venmo account. But that doesn't still describe what electronic device was it sent from. 
Was she sitting in her car outside that store because it was sent at 317? She would have been in the van outside that dollar store at the time when she sent that Venmo if it was sent from her phone. But that's the evidence that's frustrating right now that's not coming back because that's the evidence they need. That should be coming back now because they need that now. Absolutely, Billy. And the way the Venmo works, most people will know about it, is you have an account attached to whatever Venmo account uh, that you're going to use. So it could be like you said, if she perhaps had the husband's account linked to her Venmo account, then it would have come out of his account and gone to the daughter. Now, again, it's 317. She does stay in the car for 10 minutes. Uh, it appears that possibly that she was making that transaction. But with three weeks in, Billy, and you're making a good point, I think we should know at this point, since they did recover the phone, if it's operable, they should be able to, uh, you know, you go right into your Venmo account and it'll show the transactions that you made. So I think that uh, they probably do know that. They're not revealing it, perhaps. Or, or if they don't know it, uh, it's just unusual. It should, I mean, with three weeks in, with this type of a case, they should uh, have that information by now. And uh, it just seems very odd. Like you said, she's dressed to go to a football game. She's buying these items. Like you said, they're all consistent with going to a, a football game on, on a rainy day. So uh, what caused her to be, uh, was it 13 or 15 miles away at that location? How did she get there? Uh, what brought her there? What ruse was done? Was she forced there? Those are the questions that need to be answered. Well, obviously, she drove there out of, of her own volition. But what brought her there? That's the big question. What her, what brought her to the scene uh, 15 miles from that convenience store? And what made her walk into the woods? Her daughter clearly said that she couldn't walk very far because she had a bad back. So what brought her? Was she forced to go into the woods? Was she meeting someone that she had paid this money to? Or did she... Did her daughter owe someone for a drug debt or something? And that's what that money was for. All of these questions are important, uh, you know, as per this investigation, the why. We don't need to know motive. We need to just have probable cause to lock somebody up. But it is important down the road to know motive, to wonder, to want to know why. Why did this happen? Why did they do the things that they did? Absolutely, Billy. And again, uh, the point about the cell phone is going to be very important. And what were the messages there or the phone calls? Not even uh, the text messages might not reveal so much. They they probably could, but maybe they don't. But the phone calls, who was she talking to just before she went to that store? Who did she talk to after she left that store? Those are going to be very, very important factors because then you're going to be able to narrow and question those people. Did you have a conversation? What did you talk about? What was the what was this text message? She sent you. Those are all very, very important. And again, I think that if they narrow down who they believe is involved and they can get these people into an interview room separately at the same time and then use the old uh, point the finger at one another, perhaps they could get confessions out of these people. Again, uh, we don't know what direction this case is going to. We don't have the case folder in front of us, but perhaps they're letting a lot of the information out to shake the tree, so to speak. So maybe, uh, you know, if you feel the walls start to closing in, maybe someone's going to come forward or when they do get questioned, they can say, look, we know about this. We know about that. Give us the story, save yourself. If it's the other person, you know, those are the tactics that uh, most detectives would try to take in a case like this, I believe. Yeah. But Phil, I think that that both of the, uh, the daughter, Amanda and her boyfriend, I think they're experienced uh, criminals. 
I think they been <laughs> through the system, Andrew Gigerich and Amanda Beden. They've been through. So I think that law enforcement is smart enough to know they want to have the goods before they put them in the box, before they yeah. put them in the interrogation room. Because if they put them in prematurely, uh, one or both of them can uh, can lawyer up and invoke sure. counsel, and then the interview is over. So they want to make sure that they have enough information to, to when they do go into the box that you know one or both of them will flip on the other one. You know, yeah, exactly. Play a little bit of this here. Where we are to date on the investigation, uh, the results of the autopsy are still pending. The results regarding the analysis of the items we've submitted to the crime lab are still pending. We are now just beginning to get responses to the search warrants and the subpoenas in the case to date. We can tell you that we have received additional footage from a security camera from a business near the family dollar store. That additional footage shows us that Deborah Collier walked out of the family dollar store at 309, got into her van and remained in her van in the parking lot for 10 minutes before leaving the parking lot and heading south on Georgia 15, Highway 441, US 23. You know, that's so important because as you said, Phil, who was she talking to? Who was she on the phone with for those 10 minutes? That very well could be the killer, you know? Absolutely. Or someone that is involved in this little conspiracy here. That could be the ruse. The ruse was being uh, perpetrated right at that moment to get her to the location or what, what circumstances caused her to to Venmo this money. You know, that's probably what was going on right then and there. And that's very, very, very important to this case. You know, you know, 100%. And I I mean, it's frustrating because that, when I, I use the term smoking gun, that's the smoking gun, you know, that is a smoking, that's one of the potential smoking guns in this case. You got to get on that. And and it's frustrating that this evidence is not forthcoming. Her phone probably has the answer in it. You know, who was she talking to right at that point? So, so damn important. I agree. This tells us that the time frame is actually narrowed a little further to for the this case to begin at 3.19 p.m. on Saturday, September 10th and ending at 12.44, Sunday, September 11th, the time of the discovery. Please understand that this case is very complex in nature and has a lot of questions and unknowns that aren't found in a typical death investigation. It is going to take significantly more time than the 19 days that have passed since the discovery to solve this crime. We uh, also want you to know that we are working diligently to solve this case. We are trying to obtain as much information as possible so that we can put together facts and evidence to support a motive and also to identify a person or persons of interest. There it is. PB, uh, you're asking a question. Are they suggesting she could have been murdered at 321 in a minute after she left the family dollar. No, that's not what he's suggesting. He's suggesting there's a time frame between two times that he listed right. that potentially, you know, something really bad happened. And that's that's what he's um 
That's what he's referring to. At this time, I'd like to call up lead investigator George Kaysen to assist with answering the questions that you may have. First of all, I want to thank everyone for being here, uh, being part of this. Hopefully, we'll be able to answer some questions uh, and give y'all some insight um, of where we're at and kind of what we're dealing with. First off, I want to start off by saying we have got, received a lot of questions that y'all have sent in. Um, some of these questions, the information that is pertaining to those questions is very sensitive information. We will try to answer, answer them to the best that we can, but there will be information that we need to retain just for the simple fact of it being very sensitive and we, we don't want our potential persons or persons of interest to be able to get a hold of this information. Um, just so that way it doesn't. See, right there, he sort of uh, gave away his hand. There are persons and a yeah. person or persons of interest. They we kind of knew that, though, Billy. I mean, uh, yeah, well, no, we know that, but they're not yeah. letting that, they're not, they're not you know, publicly, publicly saying. letting that out. Right. They're yeah. not showing their hand, but they just did. They are looking at very specific people. Does not jeopardize the furtherment of our investigation. <clears throat> As far as some of these questions that were asked, uh, I'm going to kind of go through a list of them and try to give answers as best as possible to you. Uh, one of the first questions that was asked is, can you confirm the Venmo message from the daughter, uh, from mom to daughter was sent to mom's phone? We're still waiting more information that we have requested to confirm or deny where, where the Venmo was sent from, but we can confirm that Amanda did receive the Venmo. So there's another very important piece of electronic evidence. They can confirm that Amanda received it, but they cannot confirm the phone that sent it. Right. So, or if it was a laptop or if it was a computer right. or some kind of some other electronic device, that is frustrating because that is so, so damn important in this investigation. I'm almost certain that Venmo would be able to tell the IP address where it was, where it came from. You know, I think it's a matter of getting a subpoena and sending it to them and getting the information. Bill, I believe that too. But you know something, this, the NYPD has a sophisticated computer crime squad that would be all over this and they would be able to tell us, or Taru, we have something called the technical assistance response unit. We're spoiled, you know, and oh, we, we just called them and said, look, this is what happened. And they'll say, all right, I'll call you back in an hour. They're this all is over. A small, and I'm not criticizing these guys, but this is a small department that doesn't have these resources. And that's why I'm harping upon the fact that maybe they should have got the FBI to help them or GBI to help them because they could have expedited a lot of this stuff that is smoking gun evidence stuff. Absolutely. So it's, you know, it's frustrating. She did receive money. Um, that much we do know right now. No. Continuing on, our uh, next question was, are you in possession of uh, call your cell phone and where was it found? Yes, we are in possession of that cell phone. We do have it in evidence and it was located at the crime scene. That's huge. That's huge. I, I just learned that yesterday. They have recovered uh, Debbie's cell phone and it was recovered at the crime scene. I mentioned earlier, at the very least, we want fingerprints and DNA dusted from that uh, cell phone. Uh, besides all, all the other forensics we want done with that, of course, we want 
uh, incoming, outgoing calls, text messages, cell site information. We want all of that information. So forensically, that phone should be and is a treasure trove of evidence. It's going to give the movements that she took when she left the location. If there were stops, different things like that, it's going to be very, very, very important and imperative to this case. Absolutely, Billy. 100%. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like this show, uh, real crime stories from a police perspective, Phil and I are both retired NYPD. I am an NYPD sergeant, 16 years in the detective bureau, 10 years in homicide, six years in robbery. Uh, we have a lot of police experience between us. Phil did 22 years on the NYPD, a long time in the Detective Bureau, the Intelligence Division, and we have uh, a tremendous amount of investigative experience. And we like to share that experience with you as, as our audience, as our viewers. If you'd like to subscribe to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And we have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you can join. You see a lot of folks that are in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. Uh, we also have a, um, a defense attorney named Joe Murray, who's a big uh, supporter of our, uh, of our uh, channel and of our YouTube and this is, this is Joe. We do a little commercial for him every time we do a show. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, folks, I always talk about uh, in these cases something called victimology. And it, it, I talk about it ad nauseum because it's one of the most important things in homicide investigation. And simply victimology is the study of the background of the victim. You want to know everything you can possibly know about the victim. Where does she work? What's the hours that she works? What cause does she have? Uh, what are Who are her friends? Um, all the members of her family. How much money does she make? What's her financial situation? You think they'll do a financial on Debbie Collier and her husband, Steve? I think they should. I think that could tell them a lot of information. You might not think of it. Motor vehicle checked. How many cars did they own? Why was she renting this car? What happened to her car? Is her car really down? What shop is it in? What was wrong with her car? Let's go talk to the mechanics. What do the mechanics know about her? Look, sometimes the mechanic may know, oh, yeah, we know that daughter. She's this. She's that. People, could, people that you least suspect can tell you deep, dark secrets about your, your, your target. And uh, that's why, as a detective, as an investigator, uh, Charisma, thank you for the $3 super sticker. I love that thank name, you. Charisma. A beautiful name. Um, you, are, As a detective, as an investigator, that is your one of your biggest tools, the ability to talk and to interview people. And soliciting information is one of the biggest talents that a detective possesses. Billy, victimology is so, so important in a case like this. I, I'm glad you brought that point up. I was thinking about that earlier. The financial part of it, are there financial track, uh, transactions going down after she's already dead? Could there possibly be 
people are removing money from her accounts, moving money around. That's going to be all very, very important. That could lock in a suspect for sure, because now you have them on the financial crime. And when, with a case like this, if I'm getting somebody in the room, I want them in the room when I know I have enough that they're not leaving that room. I'm putting them in the room and I'm telling them, you're not walking out of here. You're being arrested for whatever it is. Now, do you want to cooperate and help yourself? Or are you looking to just face the judge with all of this evidence we have against you? Those are very powerful things that could be going on in that interview room that could possibly motivate someone to give information, give somebody else up. Uh, I I would think that that's the direction that this case is probably going to go in. And I would really be checking those uh, financial records for sure to make sure that there's not any transactions going on uh, with this dead woman's accounts. You know, Phil, that, that, that's really a great point because people, as we speak, or prior to this, could be a fleecing a bank account. Exactly. You know? And we, we don't know a lot about her husband. Her, um, he hasn't been mentioned that much. And I don't know how his name is uh, Steve Collier. And I believe her daughter, and she also has a son um, who also hasn't been mentioned. Her son is Jeffrey Bearden. And her daughter is Amanda Bearden. Now, they obvious were, obviously were from a prior husband. And Stephen Collier is, she's been mar- she's married to now. During the time that she went missing, he was working at a parking detail for um, the Georgia Bulldogs football team. And it's confirmed that between the hours, I believe it was like 8.15 and 4.15, he was confirmed. Uh, at work and they have video of him being at work. So those are some of the things that I talk about investigation. Sometimes it's as important to exclude as to include. It was the only, there there was another, uh, another person that was um, that people were getting a little bit raised up about. And um, Debbie Collier had a vehicle accident about a month ago with a parolee. Supposedly paint fell off his car, hit a car, and people were insisting that could be the perpetrator. And I said yesterday, I said, well, that's very easy to uh, to figure out. Let's see if we can exclude him. Let's see where he was yeah. during the days in question. If he has a solid, rock-solid alibi, then he's out. Now you don't have to pay any more attention to him. You know, that's investigation. And many people, you know, uh, content creators on YouTube, they've never done these investigations, but they throw a lot of shit into the mix sometimes. I'm sorry to use that word, but it's true. They throw a lot of stuff into the mix that really, well, that can be excluded. Oh, that ex-con? They, they excluded him. He was at a verifiable location for two of the two of the days that are the days in question here. So boom, that's over. Now you put that to sleep. You don't have the... Uh, you know, you don't have the grassy knoll anymore, you know? Yeah. That's a very good point to bring up, Billy, because again, someone is arrested in a case, a defense attorney is going to look for things in that case or talk to people and say, well, you know, they didn't look at this guy that uh, she had the accident with a month ago. Them interviewing him, uh, finding out what his alibi is and they confirm it is excellent for the 
prosecution going forward because there can't be uh, some doubt brought up at a trial. Say, well, you know, this parolee had an accident. Maybe he killed her. Bring doubt into the case and possibly a person could be uh, exonerated of criminal charges. So that's why it's very important, like you said, to exclude people as well as include people as far as suspects go. And I think that's very, very important. Going back to the financial transactions, did she own any property? Was there any transfer of property recently? Were signatures forged? That would give motive uh, if you can identify who you know did these things. So again, all of those things that are going to be looked at, very, very important. And um, I'm sure that the victimology in this case is taking a big part of the investigation right now. You know, Phil, or, or for that matter, what if she has, we don't know, what if she has a, a huge life insurance policy? Yeah. Has that been looked into? Of course. Has anyone, that's usually something that the district attorney does because that is, you can get that information via subpoena, as you know. So you need an attorney to do that. In the NYPD, sometimes we would use the legal bureau to do some things like that. Uh, but usually we would prefer to use the district attorney's office, but Sometimes the chief of detectives would get so crazy and say, use the legal bureau, you know, and so we would do what we were told. But um, so things like that. Yes. Does she have a huge life insurance policy that could provide a motive, you know, and that that's so important. Call your well, one of the things you would do, you would find out from the family, ask them if she has a, a, a life insurance policy. And if they say no, and then you find out that there is, then you're going to go back and say, well, how could you not know about it? You were named as a beneficiary. All of those things. Very, very important. Absolutely. Her husband, who she lives with at their Athens home, told police he last saw Collier before they went to bed at 9 p.m. the night before. He told the athens Clark County Police the two don't sleep in the same room because he snores. The next day, he told them he got up and left for work. Collier's daughter said the next afternoon she got a Venmo transfer from her mom for $2,385, along with a message that said, quote, They're not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. Bizarre indeed. On Sunday, September 11th, the rental van she was driving was tracked down 60 miles north to Habersham County. Her daughter said she had rented the van because she had wrecked her car. Authorities used its Sirius XM radio to track the van to this rural area. Near you know, that's the first time I heard that she had wrecked her car. I just right. heard that her car was in the shop. This is the first time I'm hearing she wrecked the car, so. Tulua Falls. Collier's body partially naked, set on fire, her hands gripping a small tree, and next to her, a red tote bag and a partially burnt tarp. A crime scene now on the hands of the Habersham County Sheriff's Office and it's been 10 days since Collier's body was found. No one has come out and said this is a homicide. But what the sheriff's office did say tonight is they've executed several search warrants at locations tied directly to Deborah Collier and interviewed those closest to her. Okay, thanks a lot for the update there. Very. So this case was never ruled officially a homicide by the medical examiner's office, and that's uh, who usually does it. And, and I believe they're on Habersham County, I believe is under the coroner system also, which we have spoken about 
on other cases. Um, but, you know, the medical examiner will rule. You know, we, we spoke about this before, cause and manner of death, cause blunt trauma, cause asphyxiation, cause gunshot wound, cause uh, blunt trauma. Um, manner, homicide, suicide, accidental or natural. natural. No one officially, although the police said, we're investigating this like a homicide. So what is it a homicide? I think that the police, they're an authority, aren't they? They said they're investigating. I believe this is a homicide then. How can the news reporter refute that? The police said this is, we consider this to be a homicide. In fact, their words were the death was personal and targeted. So how do you, is that, is that make it natural? Does it make it suicide? Does it make it accidental? No, it makes it a homicide. Yeah, you know? they ruled they ruled out a suicide. They were personal and targeted. I mean, I think it would be shocking to me if they don't know the cause of death yet, or they don't know that it's ruled a homicide. They may not be showing their whole hand of cards here, but uh, I would find that quite shocking. This is not, you know, this didn't happen yesterday. Maybe a little further examination. We're talking about three weeks now, whatever it is. So again, uh, I think they do know. And, you know, the, the item she's buying, the husband working at the uh, the stadium for the parking, it seems consistent that she might have been going to a game or going to meet him or whatever. But again, now, if you don't have that text message, you might think that she was possibly kidnapped or, you know, taken by force. But when you have that tech me text message, that throws a whole different spin on it. And it seems very, very uh, unlikely that she was uh, you know, a victim of uh, a random attack, and they, they've said it's not. So they, they, it sounds like they, they're playing the cards close to the hand, but they're giving a lot of information out. So I, I think that they're they're definitely in a, a direction of uh, who's responsible for this death. But, Phil, the whole thing with uh, her making that, if, if, again, if that was even sent from her phone, if she even sent that text message, that seems like it's a misdirection. It's a. Uh, it's like a stage. They're yeah, staging. It's a staging. They're trying to stage like it's a kidnapping. Yeah. Uh, to lead the police on a different direction. However, then she shows up at this location. So was that was that where the kidnapping the kidnappers were, where, where she was murdered? You know, that's very strange. But again, all of this electronic evidence, all of this physical evidence has to come together. And I think the answer will be forthcoming. Absolutely, Billy. And what I'm curious to know is, were there text messages following the one where she uh, Venmo's the money and she makes those statements? Uh, did someone direct her? Did she pick somebody up? Did she meet someone? Uh, those are going to be very important factors. I mean, how did she wind up on that road 13 miles from where she was when she bought the items and, you know, almost pulled into the woods and then she's, uh, not, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like she was dragged to the location. She probably walked into that area where she had to be forcibly or some type of ruse. I mean, I don't think she just decided to go walking in the woods and, and set herself on fire. It's obvious it's not a suicide. So again, we need to find out what were their drag marks. Was she dragged into that area? Those are all very, very important things that will give us an idea of what transpired when she got to the location and how she got there. What was the what was the the cause that made her get to that location? I think that they could figure it out at this point based on all the information that they've already uh, submitted. But you know, one of my problems is at three seventeen, allegedly, not allegedly, the the Venmo was sent. Venmo. 
Mm-hmm. Or they don't know if yet if it was from her phone. However, that cryptic message, as it's uh, referred to as, is they won't let me go. And then she tells her daughter where the key, which I thought was a little bit strange too, where the key to the house is. You know, if you're being kidnapped, is that the next thing you say out of your mouth? The key? Oh, there's milk and cookies underneath the tray in the refrigerator. I mean, it 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 seems very strange to me which is another reason I believe it's a staged act. It's it's not real. But I, what I have a problem with is why did it take them, you know, 18 hours to find her car? Why did it take that long? If she potentially is the victim of a kidnapping and she's in danger, why did it take so long for them to find that car? It was a rental car. They couldn't have called the rental agency and found out, oh, yeah, there's GPS on that van. And the van is here. It's at such, you know. Yeah. That's eventually how they found that out. So why did that take so long? Yeah, that's another good question. I mean, perhaps the uh, rental company couldn't get a hold of them. I don't know which company it was. But, uh, you know, was there somebody in the car with her when she was outside of that dollar store? Has that been established, Bill? I don't think it really has. Well, they're A-S-S-U-M-E. And they're assuming, and you know, the, you, you assume means you can make an ass of you and exactly. me. If you assume, they're assuming she was alone, but they don't know for sure she was in that van. There's another uh, reason that the phones could put people on the scene or in that vicinity based on cell site information, which can be very hard to explain uh, by certain, I don't want to use persons of interest, but, but, uh, by certain possible suspects in this case. Yeah. If you're sitting in the car with her and you have a cell phone on you, you don't even have to be on it. It can give a general area of where that phone is pinging to which cell tower. So again, so if someone, uh, I'm not going to name anybody, but if there's a person that they suspect as being involved in it and they say, where were you at 3:17 PM? And they put themselves out of that area. You have cell phone technology information that can lock them in. And that's when you would, you know, get an interview out of them. Where are you? What were you doing? And they put themselves somewhere else. And then at some point you're going to sit them down and you're going to say, listen, we have reason to believe you're lying. Here's the proof. And you'll watch the blood draw out of their face. And uh, they'll probably start telling more lies, you know? So very, very important stuff. Exactly. Uh, The next question that was asked was, what was Collier's cause of death? And as Colonel Kogod mentioned, we are still awaiting the full report from the medical examiner's office. Once that comes in, we will absolutely update everyone on those findings. Uh, what records and data have we analyzed? Due to that being a sensitive, uh, that being sensitive information, much as the disclaimer that I gave uh, when I first stepped up here, um, we don't want to reveal any information that could possibly be a potential or potentially jeopardize our investigations where our suspects would get that information. Um, there was a question about Deborah's phone records. We have served multiple search warrants on multiple different cell phone carriers. Uh, we are working with them to get all pertinent data uh, from those devices and from those carriers. So hopefully we'll be able to develop more of a timeline, a better timeline and hopefully be able to find out more information about what exactly happened. Um, 
inclusion of family members. A question was related to that. <clears throat> is that um, right now we have not ruled anyone out at this point. Um, we have ever developing leads and are gradually having information that we have requested to come in. So we're still in the process of trying to find persons or person of interest. Uh, and as that information starts to trickle in, it will actually help us with developing uh, more information for y'all to have. We're continuing to investigate uh, Deb's activities from September 10th through the September 11th, uh, which is also going back to the timeline. Uh, we're gradually just getting more information in. We want to know just as much as anyone else does. And we're working, as Colonel Kogod said, we're working diligently. We've lost a lot of sleep as such as such should be um, in this investigation. Um, we've devoted a lot of time to this investigation. Um, you know, Phil, I, I know for a fact no one cares whether detectives get sleep or not. So when he said we've yeah. lost a lot of sleep, uh, I don't think anyone cares about your sleep. People want results. People want to know uh, what's going on with this investigation. People want to know when you put someone in handcuffs. And look, I feel for the guy. I know he's not getting any sleep and he's not going home. <laughs> We've both been but, on that side of yeah, it. Though, but you can't bring that up because the public will be like, who cares? Yeah, right. You, know, you signed up for this deal. job. Yeah. You signed up to be a detective. You don't want the job. You can, you can quit, you know? But, you, you know, what's funny about it. Most of the time, I didn't even want to sleep when things were, you know, when things were heating up on a case, you know, you, you, you're not thinking about sleep, especially if you, you know, you're hunting a, a fugitive, a murderer. So uh, my interest was so into that, that, you know, sleep became secondary. I mean, obviously at some point you have to, you know, you don't want to collapse, but uh, you, you're not really, you know, you, you didn't even think about going home. Like if you were hot on a case and things were happening, you just, that's, it was just something on the side and you worried about it later, you know, but he said something really important in there. If you noticed, he said, we're, uh, uh, search warrants on, uh, to, uh, several cell phone carriers. That's telling me they're looking for cell phone information on more than just her cell phone, which I think was obvious, but, uh, I think that was important information that he let out right there. You know, folks, one of the things that you probably don't know is that Getting this cell site and cell phone information, it's not free. Police no. departments have to pay like $500 a day to get this information. I know this is going to be shocking to all you guys listening, but if you ask for three days, if it's a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they may give it all three days for $500. But if it's right. during the week, they want $500 a day. And that was what it was when I was on the job. So it's probably more like 1000 now. So Listen, uh, cell phone tower dump? could be $100,000 because there's so much information coming out of a cell phone tower. Now, that's in a, in a busy, like, New York City area. Maybe out in, in a, uh, an area that's, you know, the suburbs might not be so bad, but they they want big money for these, uh, for these uh, you know, these cell towers and stuff like that. So very, very expensive. That's why the FBI has the deep pockets, and uh, a lot of times they're utilized for that purpose. And, uh, you know, you only hope that you can get – uh, the police department in New York to go for, and the district attorneys to go for some of these uh, subpoenas that you need for cell phone information. It's, yeah, the, it's, the NYPD sometimes was so cheap, they wouldn't pay for it, but you try to get the district attorney's yeah. office to pay for it. Yeah. Would you pay for it? I want to dump this phone. Uh, the, the terminology back in the day too used to, it was all landlines. They would call it a phone dump, which yeah. simply meant 
would you run incoming and outgoing calls for a period of two, three days? And back then it was cost, it cost $500 a day. And now I'm sure it's a hell of a lot more, but it's so much more prevalent now. And now with cell phones, it's much more complicated too, way more complicated. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I said a hundred thousand, I think it's more like 10,000 for a, a cell phone tower dump again, depending on the uh, location and stuff like that. But uh, the cell phone companies, they have to put technicians on this stuff. And they're, you know, obviously people that probably make a lot of money and uh, they're, they're kind of trying to discourage law enforcement for doing it for frivolous reasons. I think that they, uh, you know, in a case like a homicide, Everybody understands that, you know, it's very important to get that information, especially if you're zeroing in on a suspect. If someone in the chat asked, who are they paying? Yeah, they're paying the cell phone carriers. Yeah, the carrier. individual, Like Phil just said, they have to hire a technician to do this work. It could take them, I don't know how many hours. So they charge money for it. And uh, law enforcement doesn't like to part with money, believe me. <laughs> But, uh, we, we know that in the NYPD. Yeah, that's that's for sure. You know, so let, let me play a little bit more of this and then we're going to uh, call it a day. A small tree in our hand. What does that indicate? I mean, that's a, that's a lot of different indications. I'll let, I'll let kind of talk about that. At this point, we're not sure what it indicates. Could she have been alive? Very possible that she could have been alive at the time she went down the ravine. But again, the autopsy will help us to narrow down time of death, help us to narrow down toxicology reports, uh, help us to narrow down other things related to the body itself that we don't know at this time. So would that indicate if she were alive that she survived being burned? Very possible. Again, very preliminary in nature. Yes. As far as the crime scene itself, is that private property? Is it public right of way? Is it U.S. Forest Service? National Forest Land. I believe it's U.S. Uh, National Forest Land. Yes. Mm -hmm. Really quickly, Kara Stelter, Living Alive. Yes. In reference to the crime scene, um, it was mentioned that the purse that she had at the store was found there. Were any uh, other items recovered by the police in the poncho she bought? Yes. So all the items that were purchased as far as from the family dollar that we can tell right now, um, again, we're still going through the investigation, but we can't confirm that the majority of those items were found on the crime scene. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago that Amanda had just moved back to Georgia. Where was she and when did she move back? So this is what we can confirm. She lived in Maryland with her brother. She lived in, a, a, I think, the same apartment complex, correct, um, with her brother up in Maryland. CDI, I can't, I can't tell you what the city is because I don't have her, my notes and stuff in front of me, but I do know it's Maryland. She moved down here on the 8th, which would have been Thursday, September of September 8th when she moved down here to Georgia. Um, so we know that she was down here at some point on Thursday. Yes, sir. The You're clear it's not a kidnapping, despite the fact that that note with the Ben mother, well, is that something that has made things particularly murky? Because that note seems to give the impression something was going on. I'll tell you straight up. Right here, as far as this investigation goes, it seems like once we get on track with something, like a curveball comes in out of nowhere. Um, we're, that's why we're staying diligent and trying to stay on top of things and following up with leads because we want to make sure we get facts, um, specifically to give y'all, uh, never, ever admit that you're baffled. 
<laughs> I agree admit, with that one. Never ever admit you're baffled about anything. Oh yes, we're we're throwing a curveball, but we're dealing with it. You know. <laughs> we want to make sure that we have all the information before we start <clears throat> pushing forward. Did she? Did Amanda give any theory as to what was going on? Why she would get that kind of message, especially now that we know mm -hmm. this that message was probably. Something happened there, Billy. Yeah, something uh, happened with the. Uh, Tonight. So, folks, we're going to stay with this case. Obviously, uh, new information should be coming in as the evidence comes in, as the cell site information, as the text message, as the call detailing information. So important. And, you know, we don't, we don't make light of it because we've done this before. The organization of these investigations is so, so, so important. And you actually need someone that just does that, that organizes everything, because you could have a pile of paper, and what does it all mean? Unless you, it's usable. So you have to have the case folder put together in a way that it can be read and understood and the direction known. It's no joke. Uh, you know, it's it's like having, you know, just tons of information and that's that's unusable. So you have to make it so that it is usable. Phil, final thoughts. Final thoughts. I want to make a comment about what you just said. The organization of the case folder, very, very important because something that somebody told you on the day after the homicide, now it's three weeks later. You're not going to maybe remember every detail of it. So you want to be able to get back into that case folder, look it up right away. Uh, another point I wanted to make, how did she wind up with, uh, you know, unclothed? Where were her clothes? Were her clothes found at the scene? This is all sounds like a staged crime scene. Very, very important. Again, uh, prayers for uh, Debbie Collier and her family. Uh, let's hope and pray that the uh, answers to all of the questions that we brought up during this episode are going to be answered real soon. And let's get some justice for this woman. Uh, I feel that arresting is imminent. It sounds that way to me. Uh, let's hope it happens sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Folks, thank you uh, so much for tuning in today. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Have a great uh, rest of your Sunday. God bless, and we'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.